Hey guys, before we get started today, wanted to let you know that the Mina Kime show is now fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. Speaking of greatness, which NBA superstar is going to get their first championship ring? The Suns' Chris Paul or the Bucks' Giannis Antetokounmpo? Find out by listening to every NBA Finals game on ESPN Radio with pregame starting at 8 p.m. Eastern and watch starting at 9 p.m. on ABC TV. Welcome back to the Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny, the only NFL podcast where one of the hosts thinks two-man coverage is when you manage to shed on both your parents before you leave the house. Lenny always does that. Well, that is Lenny. I'm Mina Kimes. And today we've got a very special episode. We are taking a break from division previews. We will be returning next week with the NFC West because I had two friends that I wanted to interview. I've been wanting to interview for a while. And they both happened to be free around the same time. And then I said, well, let's couple it up and make it a two-part episode. The second half, I'm going to interview my buddy, my close friend. I might be overstating it. My friend, acquaintance, I think friend, I blurmed his book. Anyways, it's Roger Bennett, uh, host of co-host of Men and Blazers, has his great new book, Reborn in the USA. We're going to talk about it. Mostly, we're going to talk about his very depressing and hilarious fandom of the Chicago Bears and some great stories around that. And he's going to answer questions. We also taped right after England lost in the Euros, so you can sense the uh, depression just palpable. It's just emanating from the entire taping, so it's great fun. But the first half of this episode is an interview with a new friend of mine. Uh, His name is Chris Vassar. Vassar, I almost said Vassar, but he told me not to pronounce it too Frenchly before we started. (laughs) He's not on the internet as Coach Vass, and by I assume people he has coached. Um, he is the host of the Make Defense Great Again podcast. You might have heard him on other pods with friends of my pod. It's a big pod coaching tree. I don't know who's the Belichick of it. Certainly not me. But he's the guy that I have really enjoyed listening to, learning from. Uh, and, you know, I feel like uh, we live in such an offense quarterback centric world. It's time for me to dig into defense. So, Coach Fass, thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. And I, I have to say, when you asked me to do this, I was trying to get you to come on my podcast. I'm like, well, how about you come on mine? And I was elated. But then you said I was sharing an episode with Roger Bennett. I am so excited. This has been my like, I arrived moment. I've been a Men in Blazers <laughs> fan for 10 years. Oh. I did a YouTube montage for them. I have a note that Roger actually wrote me about seven years ago, and it's still in my refrigerator to this day. Oh. So I am so excited to be sharing an episode with him. You have no idea. So and thank you're, you. You're the opening act. He is yeah, great. Second to you. <laughs> um, no, it, it's great. I two great football minds. Uh, just different sorts of football, I would say. Not that, Roger <laughs> knows you. a lot about American football as well. Actually, you'll, you'll hear he about does, that. He does. And his his story is like truly hilarious about how he became a fan. Uh, but. You know, like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about football. And I, I'm, I had you on for a very specific reason or I asked you to come on. Um, it wasn't just because, as you said, you invited me on yours and I flipped it on you, but also because, you know, over the last few years, I, I and our shows and various football podcasts, we spent a lot of time talking about the offensive explosion. You've got offense across the NFL breaking records. It's been going on for more than a few years, but every year you seem to reach a new record, not just in terms of volume, but 
efficiency. Uh, and my thinking was, okay, we, you know, we, we've talked about that a lot and this, it's such a great age for quarterbacks and all the cool stuff that's happening in football, but football is a chess match. And so, you know, I've wondered, and I've talked to Dominique Foxworth, who's a common guest on the show, what can defenses do to stop it? And I, and that's something you think about a lot. Um, and I, that's really what I want to get into with you today, talking about specific teams across the NFL trends you're seeing things that are working but before we get to that I thought it'd be a good place to start just by asking why the offensive explosion is happening and at all because to solve a problem you have to first identify what that problem is and I can only imagine as a defensive coach by the way I called you coach Vass. I should have uh, established that you are you are actually a coach what has it been like watching that uh, this offensive explosion in the NFL and how would you explain it well, to quote, I forget the character's name for Mad Men. It's not great, Bob. Um, it's not been fun to watch. Pete, Pete said that. Uh, it, oh, Pete, yeah, that's right. Pete said that. I, well, I stole it from Pod Save America, and they adapted to them, so nobody knows what I'm talking about. But anyway, another one of your friends. But anyway, so it all starts with Bill Polian. There was a game, I think it was Ooh. 2003, when he was with the Colts, and the Patriots manhandled them in the playoffs. I think they won like 28-3. to and the whole plan, in fact, if I remember correctly, Belichick flipped his corners and his safety. So we had like Rodney Harrison down playing corner and they just roughed up the receivers. And so he changed the rules, the contact rule, uh, went mm -hmm. to the league and he was on some committees, I believe. And he got the rule change where he couldn't touch him after five. And that really started this whole thing. Then you have a couple things. So it goes top down. So that's the top down version. Why in the NFL? That started an offensive explosion. That that helped accelerate it. But recently, you've had coaches in the NFL going to lower levels. So generally, you know, football ideas trickle down. But with offense in particular, you see a lot of ideas trickling up. Yes. So you got Gus Malzahn, high school coach, Art Bryles, high school coach. And they did some things that – and you have freedom to do these things. I coached Division three football where nobody cared what you did as long as you had a respectable team and everybody graduated and you weren't going over, you could coach there. And so you have more freedom to try things. And finally, guys like Andy Reid went from these guys that were opening up the playbook, doing some different things. Well, it started the lower-level divisions in college – and then it trickled up into Division One, and then now it's gone into the pros. I remember when Harbaugh and Kaepernick were tearing it up. They were running plays, and everybody was going gaga about some of the plays that you see Lamar run now. And we had seen that four years ago at Millsaps College, <laughs> a Division Three school in Jackson, Mississippi. So it, it, you kind of chuckle because you, you see this stuff. And if you really want to see where the NFL offense is going to go, which is a whole other topic, we'll go watch Division Three football. But the third thing I think that's happened is – I visited Ron Roberts two years ago when he was at Louisiana Lafayette. He's now the defensive coordinator at Baylor. And he said something that stuck out to me. And he said that, and, and I still kind of can't believe this, but I, I, I trust Ron Roberts. He's very smart. But he said, high school coaches know more about throwing the football now than college coaches did 10 years ago. And mm -hmm. that stuck with me. So you have top down being coaches willing to go down and grab schemes from college. And then you have the high school coaches learning how to throw the ball better. So they're not only providing the schemes and, and don't get me wrong, NFL passing game at the elite level 
cannot be replicated in any other level and is still king at the end of a game when you got to go win, you're pulling from an NFL passing game. But what's happened is kids are coming in better trained. Yes. And so they're able to run those college offenses. And now when they get to the pros, instead of being like, okay, now we're going to teach you how to take a drop under center for how many years was it? Can this guy, yeah, he was great in college, but can he take a drop under center? That's gone. Well, I shouldn't say it's gone because you still have the Mc, the McFays, the Shanahan's, those crew. But the 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 way that NFL football is now and the roster turnover is so much quicker that hey, we got to adapt to them, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is we'll get into this later. But college defenses are way more complex than college or, or pro defenses, rather. And so because they have more time, and so it's like okay, well, instead of retraining all these guys on the offensive side of the ball, instead of retraining these guys into this offense that's really not scoring as many points as they are in college why don't we just do what they do and it works you pretty much hit on like every reason for why because like first there's the rules right and um you know that you can pinpoint a few points in recent nfl history the other one is of course like after the seahawks started mugging the dbs were mugging wide receivers getting away with it the rules changing again then um and then of course um the fact that these players are coming in more prepared. I mean, what you're seeing now with kids coming up playing seven on seven. I was just at the Elite Eleven um, in California last week competition and just watching like these high school quarterbacks. I was like, good God. Like, you know, just the, your, your point about like high school offenses now versus college deep offenses 10 years ago is so true. Uh, a willingness to pass and aggressiveness. Uh, And then like, you know, just, and this kind of sums it all up. Like you said, college offenses have been trickling up now into the NFL for about five to seven, 10 years between that five and 10 year range, as well as NFL teams being more open-minded about the kind of quarterbacks they want and actually not taking these incredible talented athletes and trying to fit them into little boxes, but actually uh, adapting to their offenses to what they do best. And that, I think, brings us to the flip side, which is what we really want to talk about, which is, okay, well, what can defenses do? Because you just said high school slash college offenses, college offenses are trickling up. When you watch the NFL now, coach, what sort of trends or I guess like what sort of through lines are you identifying with defenses that are having more success against the sort of offenses that were initially a step ahead? So I'm starting to see, let's see if I can make sense of this. I'm starting to see trends come from college that started in the pros. So the guys that you hear about most when you talk about NFL defense will always be Belichick, will always be 1A, 1B, 2, somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the name that's on everybody's lips now is Brandon Staley, who's a disciple of Vic Fangio. But you know, Brandon, when he was coaching in college at John Carroll, he was like half Fangio, half Nick Saban. Hmm. And so you're seeing with the Legion of Boom and the Tampa two, a lot of that stuff went by the wayside, but really what Brandon's doing was what Jimmy Johnson brought in the nineties from the university of Miami, my alma mater, got to shut him, uh, shut him out, but it's coming back. And so teams, you know, it's a copycat league. You hear that all the time. So when Seattle got really good, a lot of people copied that defense. The, and I could go, I, I'm not a fan of that style. Of <laughs> a lot of, a lot of, yeah, and, tried and a lot of teams failed. 
Well, what's the movie with Michael uh, Keaton multiplicity where like the copy of the copy is worse? Like it keeps getting worse. Like that's how I felt about it. Fair. And, and, and we'll get into the personnel discussion, but people are starting to look, they're all looking for Earl Thomas for a while. Earl Thomas was, Oh, he's too small, blah, 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 blah. Now all of a sudden he's the gold standard. Well, now I got to go find something else. And so, right, exactly. And so now you're finding things where the, the, College defenses are now going down to college offense. Like, hey, this offense is coming. These offenses are coming up. What do we do? And I actually called a bunch of my college buddies and asked. And and surprisingly, it's depressingly low how many teams, NFL teams, reach out to these colleges. I don't get it. There's like a there's like a disconnect there. Like I, I have I'm a high school coach, and I'm not on the field as much as I was. I'm more of a consultant now, but. I have college coaches call me and say, "Hey, we're seeing this. We're seeing that. Like, what, you know, what do you do?" And and because there's an exchange of idea, and I think it's really because of recruiting, but the NFL is kind of on its own. But what they're doing is they're hiring guys to come in and even interviewing some guys. I won't say any names, but interviewing certain coaches just to pick their brains on certain things. And what's happening now is you're getting a couple main trends. The one trend, and I'll kind of put it to the side right now, is the Belichick. Everybody's we're going to draft a bunch of man corners. We're going to skimp up front because I know we're going to talk about that a little later. And we're going to play man-to-man coverage. And that that's kind of one thing you have the Seattle guys. But the big one that you're going to start to see, and I don't think it's a fluke, is the Vic Fangio, Brandon Staley. And their big thing is they're going to play two high coverages. So they're going to have two safeties on the roof. And they're going to play quarters coverage. Where they're just going to basically, it's going to be four across man. But if my guy goes out, I'll go help my buddy. Or they'll play a, a zone over the top, and then they'll mix it. And then because of the NFL hashes being so narrow, they can actually play certain coverages that you can't play at lower levels that actually help them, especially if you ever have a guy like Jalen Ramsey. Hey, you take care of this side of the field. We're going to allocate all of our resources to the field. So you have that. And then the, the other thing is, is when you line up with one high coverage, which is the Seattle family, they just line up in it. And the disguise is harder. And so... It's really it's really easy to bring a second guy down to the box and get into one high. It's a lot harder to show one high and get to two high. You can do it, but it's not as great, which is why most teams don't do it. So, and the only teams that do do it only show that sort of look. I so, think it's worth hitting pause, by the way, to explain why. So, what you're identifying this sort of movement away to from playing more of the single cover three to this two high. So, cover three. Uh, we're talking about early downs, first of all, right? And the right. benefit of playing with that is is it's easier to stop the run. And what you're talking about, but then as as we discussed earlier, the, the trend in the NFL right now is you are seeing teams that are passing more on early downs than ever before and with great success. So how does too high factor into that uh, in terms of like as a response to too high and early downs rather? How do, And the Fangio-Staley defense, how does that, Figure like why does why is that better suited to stop modern NFL offenses? Well, so so one thing I, I want to push back a little bit on is I think cover three is good or is better versus the run versus traditional style stuff like the Shanahan McFay stuff where mm-hmm. you're under center. I actually think it's a it's a burden sometimes when you're seeing more of the spread style style runs. And I'll get into that in the next point when we talk about the fronts. But 
you you have to you're leaving open gaps inside, which means you have to have more inside linebackers inside, which means you're giving up space on the edge. Now it becomes one on ones everywhere. Mm. Well, if you clog your front up and you make everything bounce, now you can play too high. You take the immediate run threat away from inside. And also backs can't make jump cuts. They can't go, okay, I'm going to go to this gap. No, I'm going to go two gaps over. It's I have to either go all the way out the front side or I have to wind it all the way back, which allows linebackers to play slower. It also enables enables safeties to play more patient. And now you're actually defending the run better with more guys deep. But to answer your question about that is you're able, when you're in the too high stuff, you're able to double guys more. You're able to take, stuff away when you're in one high coverage you're stuck you're playing either what they call cover one which is man everywhere with one guy in the middle of the field or you're playing zone well zone is not great unless you're playing compact offenses like a true zone well nobody's really playing compact offenses anymore so you kind of it turns everything into man well if your theory is in that one high system hey we're going to allocate all of our resources to the pass rushers and they're like, okay, well, we're going to throw the ball quick to neutralize your pass rusher. And now they've turned everything into a quick game of one-on-ones. And you've spent all your free agent money on that pass rusher now that can't get to the quarterback because the ball's coming out in two seconds. They've neutralized you. So now with too high, I can, ha- I can have everything. I can still get into those one-high concepts that can stop the traditional run if I'm seeing it or do different things. But I everything is unlocked to me. And the thing that is so great about Fangio that he understands better than anyone else is a lot of offenses read the weak safety because he tells the truth. When you're playing the Seattle style, that guy's going to drop down when you're playing, you know, the old Tampa two guys always heard about that. He was going to bust his butt out of there. He bases everything around that guy. Won't tell you what's going until it's too late. When Mm. you finally recognize and you're finally able to diagnose, Hey, it's this coverage. He's doing that you've got Aaron Donald coming down on you and it's, it's over. So he does a a better job of anybody than disguising coverages. And sometimes, you know, I always used to say, you know, never align or disguise yourself out of doing your job. Like, yes, disguise is great, but if you can't do your job, then that's a problem. Well, he's saying, Hey, you can be a step late on the run. Maybe give up those two extra yards in the run game and sacrifice those two yards so on the passing plays and the other big chunk downs where you're really going to get killed because the football is about it's a game of big plays. Yeah. Limiting big plays on defense or enforcing big plays with turnovers and takeaways and offense getting chunks. So as a defensive coordinator in 2021, you can't think, OK, and I was just talking to DJ Elliott, who's been all around college football, and we joked around about second, second and two. Like, I'm basically like, take the first down. Let's play a game of odds. You had one down and you got eight yards. Okay. Now you have four down or three more downs. If you're in a four down territory to get two yards. And now I'm going to get all crazy and try to stuff. You know what? I'm going to take away the big play. You can have this one. I'll get you next first down. And I think coaches have to change. And what Fangio and Staley have done a good job of is the old axiom. You got to stop the run. You got to do this. Right. Yes. Yeah. Hey, man. Hey man if you're going to get five yards instead of three, but that guarantees me that Tyree Kill's not going to run a 50-yard bomb on me. I'll take it. And it's a game of attrition. And then it's basically who's more patient than the other. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, ahead of the Super Bowl, we were talking about the Chiefs and 
the RPOs and what Tampa could do to stop them. Increasingly, everyone, we were just kind of like, well, just let them hand off. <laughs> like It's always better for Patrick Mahomes to be handing the football off to Clyde Edwards-Alaire than throwing it to Tyree Kill or anything like that. Um, you know, if you're the linebacker, you, you, you kind of alluded to this, but I want to dig in deeper to it. You're talking about too high in the back. And yet, while we are talking about stopping the pass, and I think a defense that is very oriented towards stopping the passing game, which we've sort of diagnosed as the reason why offense is exploding. You also mentioned that there are things that defenses can do up front that will also make it easier for them to stop the run or at least stop explosive runs out of too high. What are those things? Well, and that's a great question. And let me preface this with your listeners are probably going, well, okay, if this defense you're talking about was so good and it's so effective, why did it go away? And it's because of what we're just talking about, we're about to talk about, is the front end. Mm. The problem with the spread is if you play too high, and I know this is it's very hard to envision this, so I'm going to try to be as clearly and, and as thoroughly as possible. Hopefully, I, I, I paint a picture. <laughs> and if not, just cut it. But if they're in four receivers and you yes. have two high safeties, you only have five guys in the box, and there's six mm-hmm. running gaps. Mm-hmm. So you're short. So when you play a traditional 4-3, 4-2, whatever you want to call it, defense, there's an open gap that's assigned to somebody that's not in the box, which is why you said, hey, cover three is better. Because when you play cover three, you can tuck that guy in the box. Now we're six for six. Okay? What Staley and Fangio, and this comes from college, this actually comes, the guy that made it famous is Dave Aranda, who's at Baylor. He was doing this back at Utah State in 2012. The idea goes back to even Justin Wilcox, who's the head football coach at Cal. And I remember, quick sidebar, when I first saw this defense, I said, I will never bleeping do that. That is so bleeping stupid. The same year, I'm in the biggest game of my life, coaching in a state championship game. I threw away my whole defense and put this in. Not in, I had four days to do it, and I had no idea what I was doing. So word to any coaches that are listening. Mm-hmm. Trust these guys that are getting paid millions of dollars. You're not smarter than them. I can tell you that firsthand experience. But basically, they took the traditional thing of you need to have two edge defenders, two edge rushers. And they basically gave a soft edge. And everybody said, oh, my God, how are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Well, it's because when you're in the shotgun and you're running the football, no play can get downhill fast, which is why. In college, you see guys teach, they teach linebackers differently than if the quarterback's under center versus when he's in the gun. So why do you need an edge? So what he did was he took his defensive lineman and he pitched him inside, pinched him inside rather, and said, you can have the edge. But there was no jet sweep plays in the NFL, or not a lot of teams, let's go back to college, not a lot of teams were running it. Hmm. And there's no downhill plays. So... You can have that edge. And I remember as a defensive coach and as a football coach, and even as a casual observer, I remember watching a game with a friend of mine. He's like, why is there nobody on that edge? It's like a psychological thing. Like, here's the edge. We know we're weak here. You know we're weak here. And you're basically setting a trap. And so by scrunching everybody up inside, you now can have those guys deep come down and play the run. And that's how that adjustment up front has enabled us to go back to play those coverages that we had to put on the shelf five to 10 years ago and say, Hey, we can't do this anymore because we rethought the front. Now here's the thing for fans, the coverage, the back end of what happens in football dictates the front, not the other way around. 
But this is one of the times where you had to modify the front end to get the back end to do. So now Brandon's got the best of both worlds. And he, what he's willing to bet is, listen, elite pass rushers can be nullified. You can put a guy to chip him. You can slide to him. Now, if every one of your guys like Tampa Bay, Kansas City can win every one-on-one, all the one-on-ones, then you got a problem. But if you have a Khalil Mack and you have, and I'm talking about an edge rusher. Miles Garrett. If I get the ball out before he gets to me, Miles Garrett, if I get the ball out before he gets to me, I can't, you can't do anything. But if I'm sitting on all of those routes, you have to hold the ball. Now my pass rusher that may be in a less advantageous role who may not be as good as Khalil Mack, but gets paid a lot less money and cost me a lot less, can get there. We can do that. So it's gone back. The pendulum has swung back to coverage mm. first, then pressure. Mm. Now, there's also a school of thought that has not switched, and I want to make that very clear. But that's what happens is you you back everybody off. You put everybody in these lanes, and you say, okay, the open gap is going to be away from the running back where you have all this time. If you want to get there, you got to take a long time to get there. And now my safety that's just standing there with nothing to do could come flying down and make a tackle. I, that I whole really- thing of if your safety's making tackles, like if your safety's your second leading tackler in these coverages, oh, your defense sucks, ha, ha, ha. That's not true anymore. It's not. And is these that- guys do, and these guys build their defenses that way. We're kind of skipping ahead to the personnel discussion, but I just have to ask coming off of that. You're, so you're talking about a defense where basically, um, it, like you said, it's built back to front with too high. And then up front, you're using these uh bear penny mint fronts where the guys are kind of scrunched up so that guys if they do run the ball they got to bounce outside and the safety can come down so that way it, it, it's like space right like it's like okay if we're going to focus on the back and you're gonna um run the football well we've got a way of allocating our or uh, using our personnel up front to buy us time essentially that said do you need a special safety to do what you're describing? Because you're, you're coming off of, you're talking about Brandon Staley at the beginning of this, and I think about Vic Fangio. Good, both coaches have had really good safety play, right? Like Fangio has had really good safeties at Chicago, and now at Denver he's got arguably the best safety duo in the NFL. Um, Brandon Staley last year had the incredibly underrated John Johnson alongside Jalen Ramsey, who used uh, different sort of ways. This tactic that you're describing can you do it if you don't have elite safeties? You can do it if you don't have elite safeties, but they have to have certain types of requirements. The thing that is happening with the pro- proliferation of too high defenses, you don't have the typical strong free safety. That's out the window. Most guys I know, they'll say, you know, strong or weak because mm. it's delineating the formation or they'll play left and right, which I've never figured out how to do that and teach that well. Uh, but in the NFL, you don't play things field and boundary because the hashes are not even 10 yards apart. So they play left and right. Or like if you open a Rex Ryan playbook, there'll be just be two dollar signs. They'll, they'll they'll just be generic positions. But I think you have to have good uh, guys that can tackle in space. But you don't need – you're not relying on a Earl Thomas or an Ed Reed or a Sean Taylor, rest in peace, sort of player to do that. But – you definitely need a guy who can tackle. You can't stick a corner because a lot of guys they'll take, you know, rangy corners and try to make them deep, deep post safeties because they can just play sideline to sideline. You want a guy with a little bit of tackling knowledge or, or tackling talent rather 
but you don't have to have, you're not having to invest a first round pick in a safety, if that makes sense. So where, what position is the most important? Because you sort of, you said this, the high priced, high drafted edge rusher is not as necessary. Um, Like where would you, if you were building a defense right now, want to allocate your assets? That's a great question. So I would want to allocate my resource. The number one thing I would want to get, first of all, I want to make sure. So defensive line, those edge rushers aren't as important in my mind, or it's not that they're not as important, but they could be neutralized. What can't be neutralized is a dominant corner unless you have Somebody else now, or you can do what I, I call it the Dion principle, what they used to do with Dion Sanders, what Bill Check does, which is you put your best corner on their second best receiver, lock yeah. him up, and then you double their best guy, which he's done that with Revis and Gilmore mm-hmm. and other people. But I, the thing that made Staley's defense so special, and even Fangio with the Bears and with the Broncos to a lesser degree, is if you have a good corner that can erase their best receiver – now you can allocate all your resources to the other guys. Mm. So I would try to start there. Mm. Obviously, you don't want your line getting blown off the ball. So you want to make sure it, it's not so much when I look at personnel, because I always ask this question in high school, because you have to like, where are you going to put your best guys, right? And 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 they change over here. You can't recruit. But it's it's kind of like the, the, the question you asked me about the safeties would be with the D line. Like, I don't need Aaron. I mean, great. It's great to have Aaron Donald. It's fantastic. But. I just need a guy who's not going to get blown off the ball. They're cheap. They don't, you know, they're not going to cost you a lot. You can get them in free agency. You can get them in late in the draft, but they don't have to be freaks, but just don't get killed <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah. You need some sort of pass rusher. And again, I know we're skipping ahead, but <laughs> you know, but what does that look like? The pa- the Patriots best pass rusher is an off ball linebacker. Everything that they do is di- when they get into certain packages, except for last year, was designated for Dante Hightower to the point that they used to have a call. It was called Rush 54 Cover O, which meant we're going to rush five people and we're going to call whatever stunt, twist, blitz, whatever is going to help us get 54 free on their weakest link. And again, talking about allocating resources, 54 Hightower and off-ball linebacker, I don't care how good you are, you're not going to get paid the same as the guy you mentioned, Miles Garrett. So you need some sort of pass rush, but I'd rather have four guys that were good rather than like one guy who's just mm-hmm. an absolute, unless we're, and then it gets to a certain point, like once you cross the threshold of like a Lawrence Taylor, then yes, I'll take Lawrence Taylor. But those guys are so hard to find and they're so expensive. And the problem is if they get hurt, like everybody talks about the San Francisco, the, the, the San Francisco chargers, the copies of the copies of the Pete Carroll, well, look what happens when their pass rushers went down. Look yeah. what happened to their defense. Ultimately, that, that's you know, it's it's not even it's not even a matter of like numbers, but you know, you blow an Achilles or something. I mean, Vic Fangio, here's a guy who gets the Broncos job. He's got Von Miller and Chubb, and they've played four games together out of thirty-two. Four. You it's- know what I mean? So what? What? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great point, especially about the depth thing, because I think. Again, with cover three, people forget how, like when we talk about the Legion of Boom with Seattle, people really let, like, wrote Averill and Bennett out of history. And 
even though they were arguably as important, right, to, schematically. And then when it was when Averill went down in the Super Bowl that Seattle lost. But um, I, you mentioned New England, and, and I actually I really want to talk about that because New England and Baltimore – uh, are you know you, we talked about Staley and Fangio, the, the, but those are two teams that have shied away in recent years, especially from investing heavily in an elite pass rusher. Bill Belichick famously trading away guys like Trey Flowers, Chandler Jones. They added Judon this year. Who there was some questions coming from Baltimore. Okay, he had a lot of unblocked pressures there. Is this a guy who can actually win a one-on-one? Is he, you know, a number one edge rusher? But the, Bill Belichick doesn't need or want a number one edge rusher. Uh, those are two teams that do everything they can to manufacture pressure and have invested more heavily in the back end, which is sort of, I think, dovetails with what you've been describing. I'm going to give you an old coaching axiom that I think still holds true to someday. Maybe this is more of lower level football, but on offense, you're as good as your best player on defense. You're as good as your weakest link. There's no punting on defense. There's no deep freeze. If you want to eat, you got to hunt on offense. If three things bad happen in a row. Oh, well you guys, you guys deal with the ball. Now I'm going to go have a sandwich or no, you wouldn't have a sandwich. What am I talking about? I'm going to go have a Gatorade. I always use that phrase. doesn't apply here. I'm going to go have a Gatorade now, and we're going to look at our iPads. And they're, I'm sorry, Surface mm. Pros. Jesus, NFL, please don't hate on me. We are fueled by Gatorade. Uh, but, so you heard the ad at the beginning, so I appreciated that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Seamless, hey, seamless now. integration. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that either. That's the best part. So on defense, what if, if you know you have this superstar, but the guy on the other side is terrible, Mm. they're going to figure out a way to go at him. So that's, I guess, kind of what I was talking to about. I'd rather have four above average to good rushers. Yeah. Like, and then you mentioned Kansas City. You know, they, yes, they have good players, but there's not one guy on that front now. I'm a little biased to Vita Vea. I coached against him when he was in high school. He was a freshman and he had to sign a waiver to play varsity. I felt like we <laughs> needed to sign the waiver because he was <laughs> terrifying. Even as oh, man. Old. But I digress. They don't have a guy where you're like, oh, my God, throw $20 million a year at him. And so, but look what they did. They were able to win their one-on-ones. And so I'm going to answer your question about the Patriots and the Ravens by looking at the Titans, which I know you're probably huh. like, what? But go well, with no, me on this same, journey here. Same, the Titans, there's a lot of, it's Patriots South, so it makes a lot of sense. Now, please, no hate Titans fans. I love oh. y'all. I, oh, and anybody who's listened to my podcast. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I, 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 I'm agnostic when it comes to fandom. Like, I, I don't have. I'm, I'm not rooting for a certain team or not. But so please don't hate me. But I love Dean Pease. I've had him on the podcast. Full disclosure. I'm going to visit uh, at hopefully at some point. But if you watch when Coach Pease was there two years ago, they didn't have a marquee rusher. And they did a pretty good job on third down, I believe. I think they were top half, maybe even the top half of the top half. I'd have to check the stats. No, you're right. He he leaves and they get two pass rushers. Uh, Clowney and help me out here. Uh, well, this year they signed uh, Bud Dupree. Together, yeah. yeah, thank you. So they get them and they drop to 32nd. Why? Well, I and again, I don't know. I'm not in that room. But and I, I'm not a close Titans observer, but 
when you don't have great players, you have to manufacture a pass rush, which you can do. It's easier to manufacture a pass rush and run fits than it is to manufacture coverage. Sometimes adding more people in the, in the coverage game is, is bad. <laughs> so when, when Dean was there, I know, and I, and I can't speak to it, but w- after he left, but when he was there, I watched a lot of what they did and they were very exotic and they got guys who necessarily weren't war daddies, so to speak, loose, got them free. Then I, they got these two great pass rushers, and when the little bit that I watched them last year, they were just like, all right, let's go rush four, and they got less creative. And there you go, and that's what happens. And so, or got you know, you, you sign a guy in human nature, and we're getting psychology and stuff, but you give a guy a contract, and then he's not as motivated, blah, blah, blah. It's COVID. People are worried about a lot of things. I mean, it, the, last year is an aberration, I think, on many levels, but. And that's what happens. So Belichick says, okay, if I can get one Chandler Jones and turn him into three JC Jacksons, hmm. I'll do it. Because it's not that it, it's, I'm again, go back to the weakest link quote. I got to have 11 guys that not one person could go, oh, there's the weak link. We're going in him. And so it's, it's the average, it's your average player rather than your stars. Like, and that's kind of the fun thing. I'm it's basketball season and or basketball playoff season, and I've been studying that. And it's so much fun to study the differences between the two sports because mm. one person on defense can only do so much, but you change one person in basketball, and it's 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 life changing. So I think that's why it's not so much like Bill Belichick doesn't care about pass rushers, but he's like, hey, I can manufacture this, but I can't manufacture a guy. Like, how, how do you have? How do I make one person cover Tyree Kill better? Right. Like, how do I have one guy cover Tyreek better man to man? There's not much you can do. There's not much you can scheme up. You can scheme doubles, but if you double him, then you, you leave somebody else. And but I can scheme up a one on one on a guy like Adrian Claiborne, who was with them in their Super Bowl run when they played the Rams, and get him free on a back on the pass rush game. So that's where your the allocating of the resources becomes important, and that's where scheme drives all of that. Are there any other teams like across the NFL and we've talked about some of the better defenses in the league that you see some of these trends that are, again, better oriented towards stopping modern NFL offenses or maybe on the verge of entering that pantheon of defenses that are a little bit more schematically advanced? I don't see anybody that is going to do something different, but I, I expect the bears to follow in the Fangio Staley, uh, Staley path. Obviously they'll have their own flavor and then the giants will keep getting better. And you come from the, the Belichick family, but I haven't seen anybody yet. That's doing something very different. I mean, Dean Pease is one of the guys that I love watching. If you're a coach and you're listening to this, he does a lot of stuff and I don't want to get too in the weeds here. Cause I, I know that's it's even, I'm like, what, what is that? <laughs> basically, you know, they're finding traditional non-traditional ways to get to Tampa too. So they're scheming up free rushers and they're playing one of the best coverages in football, which is very rare. That's something that I always like watching. He's got his work cut out for him with the personnel at his disposal in Atlanta, but that should be interesting to watch. Well, I, I'm I'm super excited again. Uh, I'm friends with his son Matt, and I obviously with him coming on the podcast and and everything. I'm I root for him, but uh, 
if anybody's going to do it and do a good job, it'll be him. So Falcons fans be rejoice. <laughs> and also I mentioned the bears, a uh, Desai, the new DC. I've yeah. heard nothing but good things about him. And obviously a lot of people know about Patrick Graham at the giants, but this, the, now do you want to talk about schematics or more of the teams? Like what, what schemes we're going to start to see more of, or more of what teams we're looking for? Well, I think you, it's kind of, you answer kind of both. I mean, sort of the the NFL it really is about lineage not right like not not actual lineage although it is all about that too but like these it's no coincidence you're kind of identifying these coaches who come from who are mentored or come from the trees of the other coaches whose defenses we've been discussing are sort of doing the things that it takes I think to to go back to the original theme sort of strike back I do want to ask you, we sort of skipped this, but I don't want to let you go before asking you about this. Um, you talked about sort of the uh, what defenses are doing, what this these Fangio Staley defense in particular, what they're doing to stop the pass on early downs, but also through the combination of those fronts and then the safety coming down, stop the run if need be. But what do you do? If this is the million dollar question, if the offense steals another gap back because their quarterback is a threat to take off, which is again, we can talk about Lamar, but it's not just Lamar. Like the other, you know, the T1000 thing happening with offenses, the like terrifying future is that even as defenses are able to get a handle around RPOs and sort of stop uh, some of these other trends. Well, when you've got a quarterback who is faster than most of your defensive players, that presents an additional nightmare. Yeah, it does. And I'm going to say something that may seem a little arrogant. I promise it's not. But I don't think NFL defenses will solve the problems of Lamar until they go down to the lower levels and talk to those guys. So taking a super technical thing that a lot of coaches struggle with and trying to make it simple is the NFL relies on seven and eight man spacing. What does that mean? It's what we've talked about is we're going to play two eye coverage and get guys to the run late, or we're going to play three deep coverage, cover one, whatever you want to say, where there's somebody in the middle of the field and we're going to fit it with eight people. The way that you stop quarterbacks like Lamar is it's called max fitting. And so what that means is you're getting nine guys in the fit and you're basically it's and it, it, there's like an equation where if it's a spread offense, it's seven, but if it's a pro offense, it's nine, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And I know the numbers get confusing, but you are basically getting everybody you can in the run fit. Mm-hmm. And I know guys that swear by the Seattle stuff and do it in, in college. And I, and I'm using quotes. I'm, I'm lumping a lot of things in when I say the Seattle stuff, but they can't, they even, they're like, we can't do it versus Lamar the Lamar offense. Cause everybody, everybody in college doesn't say everybody, a lot of teams in college are running his stuff. Obviously not with him. No, but yeah, but the schematic there's, I don't think there's a schematic mystery on how to stop his stuff. I think they, the NFL relies on a certain frame of reference and it works for them. And because it's one of those things, like if you want to stop Lamar, you have to stop the run game because if you don't, like Mahomes, let him run the ball. Hand it off, like path of least resistance. But all this stuff, and I just don't mean him, but the entire run game. 
you have to take that away or else you're in trouble. And I, again, I hate that this is not a Dean Pease fan pod, but he did a very good <laughs> job his last year at the Titans. He did. Doing yeah. that. And yeah. he they they got everybody involved. And you have to change your not only what you do, because without getting too technical, you can run the same coverage. Almost I'll say the same coverage, almost identical coverages and have everybody in the fit and then nobody in the fit where you're just playing with the least amount of people as possible. And it's all about what you tell guys, what you tell them when they see something. Okay. I see Lamar opening up to me and, and he's, he's got the ball extended to the running back. Do I go fly in and go make a tackle or do I sit here, let him hand it off and then go make the play. Could be the same coverage. So it's not even so much a, they got to go to Alabama and they got to go learn Nick Saban's cover seven package, you know, some fancy, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it's, it's a mindset. And I think once they wrap their heads around that and I get it sounds maybe like, well, these NFL guys don't know what they're doing. I'm sure there's plenty of teams that do it or try to do it. I haven't seen too many that have been successful, but I think it has to be a kind of a, a, a switch in gears in mentality. Mm. And mm. it's not as simple as go play the run. I mean, there's, there's a lot to it, but it's it's a philosophical switch that's not really been seen in the NFL. Hmm. Well, and a Ever, willingness that I can think. I'm thinking off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I can't even think of it. A willingness to make changes week to week, frankly, because all a lot of the well, stuff we goes, were yeah talking about earlier doesn't really apply when you're playing Lamar Jackson. Well, and it goes back to what you said: is it's the NFL's a very homogenous, and when you get these college guys that get named in the papers for these interviews. Like I know there were rumors floating around about Jim Leonard going to the Packers and whatever. I was not only excited because I love Jim Leonard, but I was excited that like a co- a fresh college approach. Now I know Jim was in the NFL forever, but he thinks like an NFL court or uh, college coordinator rather. And I was excited to see that blood get injected in there. And I think that's why Staley, to be honest with you, I mean, what was Staley doing three, four years ago? He's at John Carroll university. John you know, he, he had a meteoric rise. He went from college to NFL head coach. And yes, there's a lot of reasons why he's a great communicator and a great teacher. I knew him when he was, we were kids, basically. At, he was in Northern Illinois and I was at a junior college in California. Mm. And there's a lot of reasons why he got that job. But I think one of them is his, he, when they played the Seahawks or when they played Philly last year, he ran Nick Saban's defense and even called it what Nick called it. I don't know many NFL coaches that would do that. Mm. And so I, I don't think there's a coincidence there that a guy that's willing to take that different approach because these guys know how to stop that stuff, or they at least in theory do. Now, can you do it? I mean, everybody knows how to stop Patrick Mahomes in theory. Can you pull it off? You know what I mean? That's the key. I mean, there's not a lot of right. secret. Like the Chiefs offense is fantastic, but it's not because of its complexity. Well, it's because they have amazing players executing at a high rate. And I appreciate you making that point because we have been talking about scheme a lot, right? As we talk about defense is what it takes. But the beauty of a lot of these defenses is the marriage of scheme and personnel. I mean, look, uh, Staley didn't succeed solely because of Donald and Ramsey. He happened to have two of the best players in the NFL at their positions, but that defense also reached new heights with those players when he arrived. And, and I think that's what's so cool um, about this league is when you see that perfect marriage of coaching and, and awesome players who can kind of execute, um, and especially at a, at a moment, uh, to wrap it up here, when 
that is what's needed on defense. And I, I love offense as much as everyone else, Coach, but I'm excited to see some of these innovations you've been describing take off in the NFL over the next few years. And I really appreciate you joining me today to break it down for everyone. Thank you for having me, Mina. I really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. All right. After a quick break, I'm going to chat with the great Roger Bennett. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit style pizza in the country, there's no competition. And I have to say, speaking from experience recently, having tried it for the first time in Detroit, it is absolutely delicious. Right now, you can get $5 off any eight corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do. Big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Mina Show today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P dot com slash Mina Show, M I N A S H O W. All right, we are back, and I am over the moon to be delighted, and especially over the moon that he showed up today after a very, <laughs> what I imagine was a very difficult weekend. Um, you know him as one of the hosts of the Men in Blazers podcast. Also, a New York Times bestselling author, I heard, uh, of an excellent I wrote book. The Grapes of Wrath. I wrote The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> he wrote The Grapes of Wrath, and it is charting again. Uh, I, I blurbed it. Uh, you didn't think Mina Kimes would be blurbing The Grapes of Wrath, but here I am. Uh, no, the book is called Reborn in the USA, and you have probably talked about it 10,000 times on 10,000 podcasts. So I'm delighted to be the 10,000s in first. But um, I read the whole thing because I, I take my blurbing responsibilities very seriously. It is, I'm, I was trying to think of how best to sum it up. Um, it's a memoir. It is about your youth growing up in, in Liverpool, your passion for all things America. I think is the right way to put. And I, when you when I saw that, I thought, eh, you know, really. But then I re actually read the book, and you actually had a Statue of Liberty painted on your wall as a kid, which is deeply weird. Um, I read about how you acquired that passion. I read about you losing your virginity, and I wouldn't say graphic detail, but some detail. Um, I read about your ultimate decision to come to America. Have I summed up the book? I, sorry, I don't know why I focused on the virginity thing at the top. That was kind of weird, but just came to mind. 
Was that a good summary? In these moments, I've learned just to stay completely silent. I find like talking about anything I do so unbelievably deeply awkward. Can I just say that it is a joy to be with you. There's a list of people that I have not met in the life, but I really, 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 really admire and enjoy so deeply. And I would say you are on that list right below Sun Min. <laughs> My mom your biggest fan. You should have had her yeah. blurb the book because it would have been as long as the book Oh itself. my God. I wouldn't even know. I could never have, I wouldn't even know where I, I did uh, text you that I was most worried about um, some men's review of the book. You told me I should be most worried about Lenny's, but God, it's lovely to be of you. And I need to thank you. You are an incredibly generous and remarkable human being in every regard. So it's a joy to be with you. And he's saying all this after I did the blurb. So you know that he actually means it. But um, part of the reason I, as soon as I read the book, that I wanted to have you on this podcast, which is a American football podcast, is that the book talks a lot about your love of American football, along with American pop culture and movies and fashion. But the football stuff is really incredible content. Um, it, it explains a question I've long had about you, which is why are you a fan of the Chicago Bears. It didn't really make sense to me until I read the book. We're going to get into the the whole thing, your whole lifelong relationship with the Bears. But I guess I, I, I want to start off just kind of treetop. I'm not going to ask you, because you've asked so, answered so many questions about the book and, and I'm sure how you wrote it and your life and I think the hopeful message. What, what motivated you to write it in the first place? I wrote the book during lockdown in New York City, the city that um, I had painted on my bedroom wall, as you say, in Liverpool in the 1980s, a magnificent city of Liverpool, but a city that had fallen on really dark times, like like the whole of the north of England had just post-industrial, lost meaning, the coal mines shut down, the steel mills, the cotton mills and Liverpool, this great port city that had no longer had reason to be a port, was really devastated. You know, we had football, soccer, we had music, um, and very, very little else. The unemployment level was was off the charts. It was a heroin epidemic. It was really a dark and and challenging reality. It didn't feel like there were that many future options. And the book is really about how you know Billy Elliot filled his life with ballet dancing and just not having that arabesque arm strength that he did. Um, I filled that vacuum by inhaling everything American that I could lay my hands on that, you know, started off with, with shows like Miami Vice, bands like Run DMC, and of course the Chicago Bears and Tracy Chapman. But when the world shut down, the New York City, that city that I've always dreamt of living in, was hit harder earlier um, up there with Seattle um, and that area. It was New York really got hammered first. And then sports, the thing like you that I structure my life around and gives me meaning and narrative and makes me feel alive. When that was was smothered um, and New York City was just, it looked the same. It felt the same. You know, I, I love waking up and just looking out over Broadway Every morning, it feels like a, a great play is about to start as the sun rises and the streets start to fill. But you knew that the pandemic was crackling around the city that I love. And it felt like chaos then. It felt dark. It felt so uncertain. 
and nature abhors a vacuum meaner. And I, I can't, like, without sports, I didn't know what to do in the present. And so what I did do was retreat into the past and start to mine memories, some of them painful, but many of them deeply joyous. And the things that were deeply joyous were mostly American in my imagination, American things that had given me strength, courage, belief, confidence over the years. And I decided to chase them almost like a fairy tale. They, they were the breadcrumbs through the enchanted forest. And that's what I decided to do, especially as a year fell away, even worse into the Black Lives Matter agony and, and then the election of 2020. I wanted to piece them together to hold up a love of America and offer America at this time of chaos really a love letter. So it's like that famous quote about uh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the pandemic. You wrote a book. I learned how to make one cocktail. That it, people keep asking me, what did you come away from this pandemic with? Like, how did you spend your time, especially in the absence of sports? I, di- I didn't, I didn't get better at anything. And you wrote a whole book, and it's a great book. It is. I, 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 it, I love you. I love you. I love you. But your cocktail was the king layer of cocktails. And secondly, uh, you are so bsing me because you brought so many people so much joy and so much meaning. You don't want to hear it, and you did. You brought. I mean, just constantly, what you, you know, what Pablo, what. Well, all those guys came out with it's you have given a lot of people an incredible amount of size, but we'll pretend you only learned to make one cocktail, the King Lear of cocktails. What Great was it? Cocktail. It's a mezcal, lime, grapefruit juice, <laughs> maraschino. I love the way how you pronounce Pablo. It sounds like Pablum. I'm going to keep that one in mind. Um, let's just talk about football because you just oh, very, very, very self-conscious very talking about fun, myself. Very, all right. Can I say two quick things before we do? I know it's your podcast and I shouldn't be doing this, but I do want to highlight two quick things. The first is that your instant reaction to my book was, and when you hand out your book, not many people had read it when you got it, Mina. Your instant reaction was, has anyone pointed out that you look like Millie Bobby Brown when you were a kid? (laughs) You really did. (laughs) (laughs) Has anyone else pointed that out since I did? No, but then I, I, I was like absolutely shocked because like the reality is I look like now I look like Millie Bobby Brown's great grandfather when she, she plays the character in Sage of Things. We both have the same haircut, but you 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 can follow that one up by saying, Well, when I was young, what did you say? Do you remember? Probably something terrible or self-aggrandizing. But but you actually just um it was great. The- you said you said I look like G- you said I used to get told that I, Mina Kimes, oh, look yeah, like Joseph great. Gordon-Levitt, circa third rock from the sun. We yeah, all, that's arguably We worse. all have our crosses to bear, was what you said. I actually oh, man, gave, gave so you cool, like. a great answer, which is when your life story gets turned into a movie, a la Billy Elliot, Millie Bobby Brown, yeah. online one, huge star turn, subversive casting decision. <laughs> that's where my head's at. Um how you become a bear? Wow, that's let's, that's let's, harsh. Meryl Street, please don't listen to that. I need you to play me. It will show your, your range in every shake regard. Your, your show. Ask the questions. Yeah, no, bears. Let's talk about the bears. Um, because you are a diehard bears fan, but that's very confusing because oh. I often find when people from outside the country who were born outside the country or grew up or whatever are football fans, they tend to latch on to successful fun teams. And yet it's like how every everybody in the '90s <laughs> was a Cowboys fan, right? Like around the world, because it was so exciting to be a Cowboys fan. Or the night a lot of, there's a lot of Niners fans internationally. How the hell did you doom yourself to rooting for the yeah. Chicago Bears? 
It's like when my book went to number one on the bestsellers uh, list, my wife's like, oh my God, you don't do number one. You just, your personality, you just don't, you don't do number one. It's true. I won the under 12 chess cup. It was such an incredible battle over the board in which I was eventually victorious. One of the great days of my life. And then this thing with the book, and it's true, all my teams are very similar. I don't take, you know, when England lost yesterday in the, in the Euros on penalties and the deeply agonizing and ultimately way that just reveals the deep fractures in the country that I left in a way which is so deeply traumatic. Like in the moment they lost, like there was an agony. I felt, I, I ride with Team America now, but it was an agony for my friends and family that I've left behind. And I know the joy it would have brought the nation, but it was also something very affirming, like, you know, the Battle of Hastings, the Battle of Saratoga, Scott of the Antarctic and his doom mission, Dunkirk. Like, don't take away my losing. I'm comfortable with my losing, all of which kind of funnels into the teams I support, Everton Football Club, a team for whom when things go right, which they do briefly, it teaches you that you should savor those moments and dance like you're at your own kid's wedding. And so I do lean into teams where there's a darkness, Mina. I'm going to be completely candid. I always have Chicago White Sox I live for and adore and revere. Um, And the Bears... Why was I originally drawn to them? I mean, the NFL started a broadcast in, uh, and this is all in the book. It started a broadcast in England in 1982 on a niche network, Channel 4. And they put the whole of the, in those days, 14 games a week, they crushed it into an hour long highlight reel, mostly that played like to incredible music. John Parr, St. Elmo's Fire. You know, incredible watching like Eric Dickerson just rip off a, uh, uh, a 40-yard run. It's great to watch him, but when he's doing it to St. Elmo's Fire theme song, it's generally, you lean out your seat and you're like, oh my God. And they used, they always use Bonnie Tyler holding out for a hero. Whenever there was a great pass, <laughs> like Jim Montana was always throwing to Bonnie Tyler, and a hero, and the pass would just zip out of his hand. And you would, honestly, I would sit there and I would just tingle all over my body. I'd never seen anything like it because the football, soccer in those days, was so deeply violent, was so like play. English football was a backwater. The best football was in Italy and Spain. English football was played by really kind of like plodding men who just tried to kick each other or the ball. It didn't seem to matter on deeply muddy pitches, surrounded by local fans who were never any tourists who really went to vent. It was the hooligan era. So you kind of went because you like the taste of your own blood in your mouth. And suddenly to see, I remember it was the New Orleans Saints, I write about this in the book, like Bum Phillips. First of all, that there was a man called Bum was just hilarious to me and that Bum wore cowboy boots and a hat. It was like, Bum was almost an American stereotype to an offensive degree and I just found it amazing. And, you know, they, they were crap. The New Orleans Saints were crap. They lost, like, what was it? It was like 12 games, the first 12 games of the season. And in England, what do you do when you lose 12 games? You go and headhunt those Atlanta Falcons fans. You show them, you know, you'll take it out on them after the game. With You know, you'll use your fist. You will show them by the tail of their blood. But they were, what did they do? They just put paper bags on their head and said, we're the New Orleans Saints, aren't Isn't this hilarious? And I was like, oh, my God. That is a revelatory way of being, just to enjoy, savour, drink light beer and sausage-based products. I was like, that life is so much more appealing. And then I had to pick a team. And really, my my great-grandfather was a kosher butcher who left Ukraine in the 1900s and was headed for Chicago, the hog capital of the world. The boat docked in Liverpool. 
to refuel. He pointed at the, there's a big tall building called the Liver Building, and he's he must have thought it was like the Empire State Building because he got off thinking he was in New York, and we ended up just we ended up marooned in the northwest of England. So I always I always mean a thought I lived in Chicago, believed I was meant to be there even before I'd ever set foot in the place, just like you grew up dreaming of like England because of the music you listened to. But I really, really, really believed. And as soon as the NFL started, I was like Chicago Bears. That if I Chicago Rodge, that's who I believed I was. An alter ego that did things I didn't do, like laugh and smile and tell funny jokes. Everyone laughed. Chicago Rodge, Chicago Bears, and I was I timed it bloody well because I mean you know what was coming nineteen eighty two eighty three. 84, they finally, by mistake, got it right. One of my favorite parts of your book in in the description of your Bears fandom is you describing how you actually followed the sport from afar, because this was Um, (laughs) pre-internet. And there's this great detail about, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, about how you would randomly call houses in Chicago to get information during the games can you can you explain to everyone how you kept abreast of what was actually happening in Chicago from England yeah I will say and I told you this this week there was so much that got cut out of the first draft of the book (laughs) the 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 editor was like there's a lot of the NFL in this book there was like there was there was like 12 extra chapters I went way deep so the the thing that detail I left out was that hour-long John Parr Bonnie Tyler confection was of the week before's game. So you were watching it on Sunday and you knew the games had been like played a whole seven days before, but the internet had not been created yet. So you had no bloody way of knowing what happened. And as the Bears got better, as you know, they squandered their whole career of the greatest human being to ever pull on a Bears jersey with Walter Payton. They squandered his whole bloody career. And finally, towards the end, Again, by mistake, it must have been seeing their track record before and since. They got it right. They turned into a swashbuckling, trash-talking, biblically smiting force of life, which, again, to me, 14, 15 years of age, said to me, below the surface, I mean, it wasn't just about football. They said to me, you can change your history. You can redefine who you are. What you were is not what you need to be. Like, which Those are... For a 14 or 15 year old who was like flailing, that was like, oh my God, what I don't have to be this. I too, I too can change. So Chicago Bears starting to win the Super Bowl winning season, they're winning game after game after game. And one of the details I had to leave out was there was, I found out a network called the Armed Forces Network. Oh, um yeah. and you could tune in live. Um but it was such a faint signal in England. Like I had a radio and you could like try on the AM uh, level to try and find it. And you could occasionally pick up the signal. It was agonizing. It was like there was a, you'd hear a lot of German xylophone jazz. And then you'd just move the dial a tiny bit. And suddenly you'd hear the broadcast and the bears are on the tower. And it's like suddenly you get it and it would be exhilarating. And then it would fade out again, back to avant-garde xylophone jazz out of East Germany. And it really, it, it was it was the most infuriating thing to try. It was like desperately trying to find a vein to save your life. And you couldn't, it was not sustainable from England to get the bloody armed forces network. And so um, I resolved to do the next best thing. I had my best friend, Jamie, who is the feature of the book. And 
still to this day, my best friend from zero. I play chess with him every day. I adore him. And my dad would have killed me if I did this. So we did it at Jamie's house. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, we'd go to his bedroom where his dad trusted him to have a phone in his room. And on game day, Sunday, when we knew the Bears were playing, we would call random 312 numbers like Giddy Kids, Mina, to hear, first of all, to hear the American dial tone that we'd heard in movies, to hear that in our own ears. We were just like, oh my God, mind blowing. And then someone would answer, like somewhere in Chicago, a stranger would go, hello? And we'd be like, hey, hey, how are the bears doing? Excuse me, how are the bears doing? And, and God love, I mean, Americans are just so generous and so wonderful and i can't tell you how i mean how often total strangers i would say nine times out of ten we could keep the total stranger on the telephone for up to 40 minutes just giving us a personal broadcast they would i mean yes the phone bills were thank you jamie's father absolutely unbelievably abhorrent but like we were we they'd be like Jim O'Mahon drops back. He's in the pocket. He looks left. He fires right. He finds Willie Gold. 20 yards, 30 yards. And we would just, we would keep them talking. And that's how we found out. That's how we followed the Bears in that Super Bowl season. What if like one of those play-by-plays was like a young, trying to think of uh, a broadcaster who was in Chicago. Uh, Tony Rowe was from Illinois, right? But he would have been too young. Yeah, Uh, it could have been Tony's mum. God, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Mother Romick, for really indulging us. It was, I will say, there was a, the other thing was, as the sport got more popular, the Times of London started to publish the results in a tiny little, uh, underneath like um, Indonesian curling, or, uh, I mean, this sport was so minor to them, it would be like a New Zealand chess results, they'd have like buried in the back. And we found out in the Times of London, they would occasionally print the results. And as the Bears' perfect season continued, perfect season, perfect season, I think it was week 14, they faced the Miami Dolphins, just like a nerve-wracking prospect, less because they were a season out from a Super Bowl appearance, the Dolphins, and more because they were the only franchise in history who had glided effortlessly through an entire season undefeated. And so the, the school, the, the teachers at the school, for their, they got the times. No one else got the times. It was like a, a, for highfalutin human beings. And Jamie and I broke into the, the teacher's common room in the morning and quickly flicked open, feverishly flung open the papers of the times and, you know, expected to be greeted by another lobside Bears routine victory, only to have the waking nightmare stare me back in the face. Chicago Bears 24, Miami Dolphins 38. You know, death. My heroes were not invincible. And I reeled away totally, totally stunned, only to find that no one else could give a crap. (laughs) I would be remiss um, if I didn't point out that uh, a pivotal moment in the memoir is when Chicago Raj becomes reality. You actually do make the trip to Mecca, Chicago, you, it's not just Chicago, it's the suburb of Chicago where all the John Hughes movies are filmed and the Chicago of your young British. And then cruel irony strikes. Can you, can you explain? Yeah. I arrived there, Glencoe, Highland Park, Northbrook, shout out to Nutria High School. I'm sure Mina, you genuinely, the Nutria Mafia by the thousand listen to your podcast. And I did, I spent the summer 
like going through the looking glass, almost becoming like my own star, my own protagonist in my mind, in my own John Hughes movie. I stayed with my pen pal. That's the person you write to in the pre-internet era, letters. Letters were pieces of paper that you'd write feelings <laughs> on and put them in envelopes and mail them to people. And, and you'd be like, no, no one understands me. Oh, by the way, Everton lost again. And you'd send that letter <laughs> and then he'd write back and be like, the bear's really cool. Here's a poster of the refrigerator Perry to put over your bed. Um, I had a big foam finger. I was the only person in Liverpool that had a massive foam wow. finger from my pen pal that said um, Bears number one. And my brother, when he got it, goes, don't you ever wear that out in the streets of Liverpool. And I didn't listen and I did wear it and I got punched in the face almost immediately. And so he sent me all this Bears cap and then he invited me over. All this got didn't, can you believe the editor's like, don't put all this in the book. But yeah. <laughs> She's like, it's too NFL heavy. So I had to leave out the part where I spent hours trying to scrub blood out of my foam finger. Um, the, the So I get over to Chicago to spend the summer with him. It's amazing. It's everything that I imagined. You know, when Ferris Bueller's Day Out came out, which was like two months after I got back, it honestly felt to me like a documentary film of my time in in um, in Chicago, I did everything that he did. Art Institute of Chicago, just inhaling Pequod pizza, ribs by the dozen, Ed the Bevick's milkshakes, gonna you know old Comiskey, amazing, amazing days, and um, and then the one tr- you know nothing is perfect in life as you know, Mina, and the one agony was that the Bears. When I got there, I did have mental like delusions that I'd like go and watch him in training camp and they'd let me in, they'd just run plays for me and maybe, you know, ask my advice on hand position, nudging passes, stuff like that. But when I got there, they had gone for the first ever American Bowl, which was in Wembley against the Dallas Cowboys. So I was where they should be. They were where I was and as I say in the book, worst of all, they seem to be having a bloody amazing time. I couldn't, it was like watching something you'd love hang out with people you knew that were not good for them, <laughs> but they're having a great time. <laughs> uh, it was, I, 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 I said that, I, you know, they went to the Buckingham Palace and they had two tall Jones and Richard Dent yucked it up with the guardsmen and uh, um, Phil Collins hung out. I, I, I can't stand Phil Collins, me now. I don't know if that's offensive to you, but I've never hated him more than when I saw him <laughs> with Walter Payton. Just the more Payton's eyes were just so happy. I was like, Walter, be here now with me. And so they played the game and um, I'm a horrible person. And so when it rained really heavily and all the English people got soaked, I was like, I took like Schadenfreude out of that. Um, but then they got to see William Perry do what William Perry does. He did his party piece and he scored an offensive touchdown. And then the broadcaster at the end, he said, the, the Bears are actually turning around right after the game, flying back to O'Hare to continue the preseason. And I was like, oh, my God, we've got to go and meet them. And again, America's amazing. My parents would like not let me out after nine o'clock at night. But like they were just like, sure, as if like getting out of bed at 3 a.m. and driving to O'Hare Airport, uh, international arrivals was just like the most normal thing to do on a, a Sunday evening. And so we went and... I, you know, we were the only people there and God loved the local NBC film crews, like killed an hour shooting us really up close to make it look as if hundreds <laughs> of kids had turned out to meet their returning heroes. And then they came through and I, I, yeah, I tell this in detail in the book, but like Mike Ditka was first through the first through the international arrivals with a cigar and his Ray-Bans and he was just an asshole. He, he was like, I remember him, he just came out and he puts his 
cigar in my face and goes, leave these men alone. They are your heroes. And I just kept, I had a little camera that I'd got from my bar mitzvah and I just started to flash it in his face. <laughs> and, you know, the guards, Kurt Becker, just told me to f*** off as I took a, a photograph of him. And then Walter Payton came out. Am I telling you in too much detail? Because I'm like losing myself to the memory. No. Well, in the book, I meet Walter Payton. He's an incredible human being, an incredible human being, just lived up to his nickname. I won't bore you with that part of the story. It's all in the book, but what a man. What, what, what a man. And then the last one out is William Refrigerator Perry. I mean, you were too young to remember him, right? I mean, you never saw him play. Only in highlights. So how would you describe him to a listenership who never saw this person play? Large, yet fluid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the man could dunk a basketball. He was enormous. Yeah. He could dunk a basketball and was enormous. He was fast. He was large. He had a gap too smile. He was out of Clemson. He loved life. He was a car. You know, the best team, that best team was a carnival, and he was just the face of everything. I had him over my bedroom wall, leaning against a fridge. Um, good work, Chicago Bears promo team. And he came limbering out and he put his arm around me and he died this enormous arm around the very small still um, kid. And he just lay into my ear and he said, dream big dreams, kid. I did. You can too. And like now you work in sports, you know, exactly that that is what every athlete says to any kid who they want to get the hell away from but straight up I, I fell to my knees and pointed at the sky and was like the fridge has unlocked the secret of life he's told me i need to stop talking about america dreaming about america i need to move here and mm -hmm. so really i'm on mina kimes podcast with lenny because of him and that's really the first moment that i saw i said i need to I need to do this. Fridge has told me. And it was like, if, if tablets, golden tablets had fallen from the sky and landed at my feet, it would not have felt any more transcendental. People have made life-altering decisions on the basis of less. Also, by the way, the slight variation in your different American accents between Dicka, Perry, is it, 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 a trained deer, <laughs> you know, notices them like myself, and I, I respect the effort. Um, okay, so you, I... God, can I, I say, you, when you do accents, you do the Mare oh, of East Town. You do all that. I can't good. do any of them. Not I good. can't do any impression. They're not good. You just did. You just did a great job. <laughs> um, so it's, it's easy to understand why you became a Bears fan now after this very dramatic retelling. But it's harder to understand why you stayed a Bears fan, <laughs> Roger, because you, you became a Bears fan because of your your family history, your personal history, the timing of it all, the incredible success that um, you encountered early in fandom. But then you, um, well, you persisted despite decades of misery. And I got to ask why, right? Because this was your chosen team. So it's not like you inherited it. You chose this team and then you stuck by it. And did you ever think about quitting or taking up another uh, chosen football team? Why, why were you so loyal? Oh, that's a deep and great question. I mean, I did, by the way, I didn't write this into the book, but I did meet Sid Luckman on that trip, believe oh. it or not. It almost sounds too much that I did meet the I did meet the last true franchise quarterback yes. the Chicago Bears have ever had. He retired, I think, when did he retire? Like 1950. I met Sid Luckman on this trip. He lived next door to my pen pal's grandma on the Gold Coast. They're like, ah, <laughs> Sid Luckman's next door. Do you want to meet him? And I just rang the doorbell. 
Such a nice man, such a beautiful human being. He wrote his signature for me in that really old curly writing that old American <laughs> people have. And it was, he was so generous and joyous. So, I mean, I think it's partially, you know, meeting him. I was like, I am determined to meet the next great quarterback who will inherit Lutman's mantle. And I'm still waiting. But I also should say, <laughs> I love I, I love the losing. I do believe that fandom, ultimately, we argue about this a lot. On my, Michael Davis is a Chelsea fan. They win a lot of things. I'm not an Everton fan. We just don't. And he believes the point of sport is winning. And I actually don't. I believe sport is human theatre that allows you to feel things. I mean, more than ever in lockdown, Mina, to feel alive, to feel connected to the globe in moments, key moments, to feel things, life, meaning, joy, victory, defeat, agony, fear, uh, you know, just just in the safest possible way. That's the joy of sports. You can feel those things. I always joke, like I can feel them like most normal people do, but I'm dead to inside. Sports does allow me to feel them. And um, I mean, the reality is, the joy of sports is when you have survived your worst nightmare, you walk away from the wreckage completely intact. Your life is really, for being honest, no better, no worse. You're not a better person because you win or a worse person because you lose. You're not actually that damaged by the agony. We're fine. We still have legs. Thank God. I mean, no hair, but legs, arms. We still breathe. We survived. We just felt incredible things. And I think there's nothing, there's no nothing I value more. Well, two things. Tenacity. I love tenacity in sports. And you as a Mariners fan, you know, Joey Cora is my favorite baseball player of all time. Really? Um, I adore him. Just to, oh, Joey Cora. Yeah, athletes with tenacity. Just yeah, I used to watch him play for the White Sox, just joy and never taking it for granted that he was on the ball field and tenacity. But tenacity is the one value. But the other value that explains my Bears fandom is just eternal hope. I love the I love eternal hope. I love I love saying this, this, <laughs> this is gonna be our year. And if if my team won too much, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Well, that brings us, I think, to the present because it was probably right after the NFL draft. I exchanged messages with you, and I think I, I said congratulations because Justin Fields, who you know I liked a lot as a prospect, um, sort of fell into the Bears. I mean, they traded for him, but he sort of fell into the Bears' laps, and nobody thought that they were picking twenty right before the trade. Nobody thought they would get him or one of the top quarterbacks. And all the Bears fans in my life, I know, were very excited, but. I don't know if you remember this, you responded sort of like, oh, no, I don't allow myself to feel, not to undermine everything you just said, because that was really nice, but, uh, you know, oh, I don't know, they're going to ruin him. But then, Roger, then you you retracted, and I, I guess, I don't remember if it was in conversation or over message, but you allowed yourself to once again get back on the horse that is Chicago Bears fandom, and you were excited for young Mr. Fields. And I, I got to ask, seeing him resplendent in his number one jersey at minicamp, how did you feel? What is your level of optimism right now about your Chicago Bears? I tell you, it's, I mean, but now that the Chicago Bears social feeds have essentially merged to the Justin Fields Instagram, one and the same. I mean, it's just, they're just serving out 100% Justin Fields all day, yeah. all the time. I'd say my excitement levels, are at about 11. 
which is how they normally are around this this moment. I'd say it's a, I, I, I love Sisyphus. I'm quite fascinated by that character, that set of emotions. Um, watching just rolling that rock up the hill, getting so close to the top of the mountain, and then that rock inevitably just slipping out. Does he? Does it slip out of his fingers, or does he let it slip out of his fingers, roll over his toes back down the mountain? I'll never quite know, but I love the Sisyphusian rhythm to um, the excitement and the Justin Fields thing. My, one of my great achievements in life, other than becoming American, Mina, is. Like I have made, I had to work at it. I've made all my kids Everton fans, which is not easy because uh, Americans naturally are pre-programmed to love winners, and uh, and I've made them Chicago Bears fans. And my wife is constantly like, "Why would you do that? Why would you do that to a human being? Why would you? Why would you encourage them? Why would you move them into that mind space?" And the reason why I love it is I do think life is incredibly hard, full of challenges. There's a lot of darkness. Um, and you know, Tessa the D'Urbervilles um, teaches you that moments of happiness are fleeting, and it's what you do with those moments of happiness—the memories you make, the joy you seize, the the feeling of togetherness—just ba- baking joyous memories together intergenerationally is, is another incredible thing that sports do. So I'm willing myself to believe, you know, to repress the memory of Jim Harbaugh of. Eric Kramer of Cade McNown, Rex Grossman, you know the litany. Um, and my question for you is how much time do we need to wait? How soon oh boy. does he take over? That is uh, the mantra. That is the question. The NFC North preview pod is coming later this summer. I wanted to wait for the Aaron Rodgers drama to shake out. Um, but I, I know Bears fans were very alarmed when there was a quote from Matt Nagy where it, it, it was taken out, it, 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 the quote was kind of misrepresented. It was paraphrased on Twitter and it said, no chance Justin Fields starts, but that's really not what he said. Uh, I think it's a, it's a th- it's something we're going to actually see play out in August. Um, the Bears do face the Rams week one, which is not the best possible start place to start for Young. And I perhaps they'll sacrifice QB1 Andy Dalton at the altar of Aaron Donald. Uh, at the beginning of the season, <laughs> but I, I think, but you also have a, a coach one Andy Dalton. who's, yeah, right. Who's, whose job is on the line. So I don't know. I, there's never a right time. It's when he's the better quarterback than Andy Dalton, which based on his college play, I would suspect is at this very exact moment based on how he looked in those um, preseason picks with the, or the mini camp picks with just wearing the socks on the, I mean, how good did he look wearing the socks on the field? Just, Walking, I mean, that's got to be the most promising-looking Bears quarterback in quite some time. Oh, yeah. I mean, Andy Dalton, is he in the top 10 ginger quarterback in the world category in your mind? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't – have there been 10 ginger quarterbacks? I – I think that's like I Kevin, I'd, I'd have Kevin. I prefer Kevin Herter to be my quarterback. To be candid, in the ginger quarterback realm than where we are. But it, it is. A, I mean, it's incredible. Just that. I mean, I'd love to see what you see. What do you see when you you watch him? I love it whenever you're on there. You say, "I've ground tape. I'm grinding tape." It's my favorite <laughs> music. Can't when you say that. I'm kind of, I just love it. I, just, oh, no. I, just love, I love that motion. I just. That notion of you pressing play on your computer, it's like, I'm grinding tape now. 
I just. <laughs> Why do I sound like Mike Nicka? You gave me the same voice. I don't know. Mike Nicka I, I, and Refrigerator <laughs> Perry. Mix it up. That was my Mayor of Easttown voice. That was my Mayor of Easttown voice. Uh, on behalf of I, all Americans, I'm revoking, revoking your citizenship. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm optimistic. I loved him as a prospect. Oh my god! Before 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 ice break in, can you t- tell me passing level arm ability to withstand pressure, block out mistakes? What? How do you handicap when you grind tape? When you grind tape? Uh, you? Grind? <laughs> um, you're always looking for different things. You're watching for different different aspects. I mean, court, quarterback is the hardest position to evaluate well not if i guess offensive line is pretty hard if you're not an offensive lineman it is hard for me but with the quarterback it's so hard and this cuts to i think a lot of issues with the bears over the years as well it's really hard because it's so contextual so many things have to go right for the quarterback to get the pass off the ball has to get snapped the receiver has to run the right route the quarterback you know the play caller has to call the right play yada 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 and it's hard to separate to evaluate a guy in a vacuum that said you look at Justin Fields, you see the smarts, the strength, the speed, the arm, and you, you just can't help get excited. Um, I'm, we always end up with five questions for our guest. Before we get to that, quick Bears record prediction. Remember, there are 17 games now. I think we, yeah, I think 18 and zero. <laughs> <laughs> look, it's done out of his hat. Here's how, here's how, here's how I think about it. I think we're living in Donald Mooney's world. I really do. I think we just don't know it yet. It's like my big, my big take. He's so, he's he's not just good. I mean, God, that's like saying that, um, I mean, he's, he's, he's really is a, I think just genuinely, God, I love that man. David Montgomery, we discovered he's quite bloody good. Yeah. We actually know how to use him. And I love, I'm a big, I'm team Cole Komet, hashtag Cole Komet. So I feel like contextually, as you say, I feel like we got the weapons. Um, I, what I don't understand is that like, Nagy was meant to be the offensive genius, the prince that was promised. Yeah. And that, that that's the element I don't, so when Pace and Nagy's future depends on all of this, these moving pieces, this quarterback Game of Thrones, it feels on that track record of the past couple of years, that gives me pause for thought. So I'll say 16 and one. There's always a fan when I have a conversation with of true football fans where my something clicks in my brain and I realize they're delusional. And that's when you said hashtag Cole Komet. It just clicked. And the I just the, the pity that was firing my neurons, just the you know, empathy. But all right. And I, I didn't think I could feel worse for you than I did. Well, that, are, you, are, you tell, are you telling me? Are you telling me that's not trending? Hashtag call commit. We'll get it trending. Let's get it all trending, right. Lenny. All right. Five, as always, five quick questions for our guest. Four from me, one from Lenny. And now it's time for dinks and dunks. I'm getting paid for this, right? Question one: Who is the English football equivalent of the Bears? Everton Football Club. Yes. Oh, it's no one for doubt. one. I mean, just uh, constant. Yeah, I mean, just it's the it, the the similarity is uncanny. It's Spider Man pointing at Spider Man. If Spider Man was a semi depressed, bleeding in confidence, delusional, smashing beers on his Spider Man outfit, um, human being. Yeah, that's that's. It. I love these questions. I feel much more secure. Okay, I, I like somebody Photoshop that for us, please. Um, question two. Who is an American football player you'd like to see play football, football, soccer? 
God, that's so interesting because Harry Kane, um, the England captain, is obsessed with the NFL and always yeah. talked in a deeply serious way about becoming a kicker in every regard. I mean, the one that we've had on the show, and it really annoys the hell out of me because obviously the two things I love in life are America and the growth of football soccer in America. It thrills me, the men, the women, just the development of, of both sides of the game. And we have all these NFL stars, like Aaron Rodgers has come on, um, DeAndre Hopkins, JJ Watt, they all told us the same bloody pathway for them in football, which is they played, they were really good, and then they got quite big, and the American coaching mentality was put the big guy in goal, and they just jammed him in goal, and the goal is boring and not what they wanted to be. They wanted to be scoring the goals, and so they just their interest just waned around the age of 9, 10, 11, and they moved to another sport. And the gentleman that I actually do believe has every asset and could have been a world-class football player in both sides of the game, as he is in in, in your football, Mina, is DeAndre Hopkins. Just, just, I mean, to see him with a ball at his feet, if it was mm. something that had been at his feet in those key key years, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, I mean, we'd be, we'd be defending the World Cup now rather than having <laughs> missed the last one. What a waste of those gigantic hands, though, it would be if he had played. It, like it, It's like a curse. There's like a German word for that. Like if you're the one part of your body that's like incredibly <laughs> large, that I, ah. all right. Um, question. The, the Germans do have a word for that. And by the way, by the way, again, your article, the definitive article, your writing, oh. the definitive writing. Let's deflect away from you because you take a compliment about as well as I do. But your article I read before I sat down with DeAndre Hopkins was was really, I mean, unbelievable. Um, thank you very much. He's um, a great guy. He's a great guy. He is great a great article. guy. Um, okay. That's one, two, three, four. Fourth question. Actually, I'm going to add an extra one. Um you know, there's. I feel like there's always on social, but just beyond, a lot of sport on sport anger and rivalry. And my sport's the best. Please like my sport is the kind of the meme of it all. And, you know, it goes in every way. And people complain about, like, American football fans complain about flopping. And soccer fans complain about American football being inelegant. Um, and along those lines, I was actually wondering, as someone who actually loves both sports with a delightful passion and lack of snobbishness, if you could make a case for American football to the world. My Lord. Really put you on the spot. I know. I, sh- I should have sent that one for him. No, 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 no. I love it. I mean, fan, I think football would be much more popular around the world. It is a quite a bizarre reality how hard they've had to, mark, how popular it is here, just immensely, bombastically popular and how poorly it's uh, exported. I think they need to show Roger Goodell getting booed at every draft more. I think if um, if world fans were exposed to that kind of just perpetual, just... Um, glorious tradition um, in 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 um, in the NFL. They would love it in every way. Why is it that the sport is not? I mean, you know what? I've ne- I, I just loved it so naturally, so earnestly, so early. like I'm. I, I young Rog memorized every college, every high. I had an NFL fact book that they used to produce of every. I just drank it all in. I've never paused for a second to ask myself why the hell are there not more. <laughs> 
glue. But I mean, I used to get the Tampa, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers used to send a videotape of their games around an underground railroad of English Tampa Bay fans. There were 12 of us. I wasn't even a real one. I just wanted the game tape. And we'd, they, we'd mail it to each other, a whole Tampa Bay. This is in the Vinnie Testaverde days, like uh, Leroy Selman, James Wilder. And um, it was, again, to receive a four-hour game tape, mostly for the commercials, which were mind-blowing. John Riggins pimping Ford trucks. <laughs> I can still remember that he did this rap, like, um, when it comes to trucks, I'm a connoisseur from the size of the engine to the sound of the door because I've been known to keep things tough. You can't keep wrong with a tough Ford truck. And like it was mesmerizing. I have no idea why the NFL is not more popular to more. I mean, maybe there needs to be more slightly uncalibrated use in the world like me. That's the problem. That was your chance to make a case for yourself as like the NFL UK spokesperson. You totally blew it. A lot of NFL influencers <laughs> listen to this podcast. You could have gotten some sweet, sweet marketing money but it's fine it happens all right some of that spin some of that spindrift dollars spindrift roger and i for, people can't see because this is an audio medium but he's been drinking a subpar alternative the entire time i've been disgusted um spin, I'm, not, I'm drinking a great now drinking don't mention it through the spindrift bleep it's spindrift again um as always last question comes from lenny look lenny was going to bring up the British loss, but you already did. And I feel bad. I don't feel, and I also, the whole thing made me feel bad and it's, I don't like to kick people when they're down. So instead I'm going to ask a very basic question. You've seen Lenny this whole time. He's been kind of popping in and out of frame. Oh, here he is. Just heard his name. Um, so like your, like myself, your podcast has two hosts, me, it's me and Lenny, you, it's you and your co-host, Michael Davies. So I just wanted to ask Who's the I'm mean? The, I'm the Lenny of Lenny, the You already knew. How did you? How did you know I was going to ask that? But also, why are you the Lenny? More importantly, because you know Davo's the star, and uh, I'm just the support dog. He's disgusted. <laughs> he's so insulted right now. And you know what? He wants you to know that he's happy. Italy won. I love I love the spite of Lenny. That side of Lenny is the side that needs to come out a little bit more, to be quite honest. The Lenny, Lenny, the god of vengeance. The Lenny that keeps a list of the people whose wrath Mina would like to, the, the, your, your area start list. That Lenny that is going to hunt them all down for you. That's the real Lenny. Well, let, let that Lenny shine. Roger, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you so much for writing such a great book. Again, everybody, go check it out. Reborn in the USA. I read it. I loved it. Sorry for the weird stuff I said about the virginity scene. It's not that long and it's not that detailed wherever you buy your books. It is actually pretty detailed. Yeah.